When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, spirituality, the Bible. And I tried to answer them with stories from the Christian tradition and my own experience. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the questions of the day and try to answer them as best I can. In this uh, series of the Dear Padre podcast, we're going to look at the life and legacy of St. Joan of Arc. As many of you know, uh, I'm a church planter currently serving in the Diocese of Texas in Pflugerville, Texas, starting a brand new church in the city. And we've named it St. Joan of Arc um, for a lot of reasons that we'll go into in the podcast, but I wanted to familiarize you with her life. Uh, I was surprised when we named her or named the church after St. Joan of Arc, that so many people knew so much about her story, and I really didn't, I confess. Uh, the folks in our community that really chose the name and were really excited about it were uh, knew so much more than I did about her life. And so much of what we know about Joan of Arc comes from the numerous portrayals of her in popular culture and popular literature uh, both from the time in which she lived in the 1400s, really the 15th century, and all the way down to the present, there are still movies being made about her, multi, multiple episode uh, TV shows, which is really exciting because um, when you're planting a church, any kind of uh, corollaries or uh, good vibes and associations uh, with someone really help a lot, uh, help to get a message out to people of love and, and really God's love for all people, which we will explore later in the podcast series. But I wanted to familiarize you with this woman, Joan, who is who comes to us through the mists of time, through the mists of history, in, 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 and is still a conundrum for modern scholars, for modern readers, for men and women who have studied her life. For this series, I'm using primarily as a source Catherine Harrison's amazing book, Joan of Arc, A Life Transfigured. It's available wherever books are sold. I'll be using it as a historical guide to her life. So hopefully we can, we can look at her life through a historical lens at the kind of stuff we can know from history. And then, of course, we will speculate on some of the stuff we can't know. But hopefully be, we'll be able to make that distinction pretty clear on on uh, what is actual, uh, what we can know from history. Whenever we talk about history, we're talking about probabilities of certainty. I know N.T. Wright goes into this in his Life of Jesus when he talks about how we do ancient history and how we can know uh, a lot about a character like Joan from history, much like we can learn a lot about the character um, we talk about uh name George Washington from history, someone who is familiar to all Americans, George Washington, and, and truly um, not just Americans, but around the world. We have an extremely high degree of probability and a high degree of certainty when it comes to the historical study of George Washington's life. Uh, we can go to Mount Vernon 
We can see the desk where Martha, his wife, wrote letters to him. There are uh, His letters have been compiled by historians and scholars into multiple volumes, his correspondence, his writings. Um, you can sort of stand there and and be certain that George Washington exists. There's so much historical evidence, even though you or I can't uh, walk up to the man and just talk to him, uh, which I know is kind of obvious, but when we talk about historical certainty, these are levels of certainty, George Washington being, being a very high level of certainty. And he's, you know, over 200 years ago, Joan of Arc, we're going back a little bit further in time, but we're not going as far back as, say, the life of Jesus or early church fathers or early church saints or even characters from the Hebrew Bible or ancient Hittite religion. Oh, on the Hittites, I am thankful for George giving me a book about the Hittites, which I started recording into a podcast about Hittite religion, and I kind of got bogged down in my thread of where that was going. So we'll probably revisit Hittite religion uh, in a future podcast when we go back. But really the question we're asking in this in this series on Joan of Arc is, who is Joan of Arc and how does she relate to our story today? How does she relate to, to what we're doing here today? Not just me as a church planter or this church plant community, although I hope that uh, folks from the church plant are listening to this right now. And if you are, I want you to know that Working with you on this project has brought me so much life, so much joy, and it's something that um, really makes the rest of my life worth living in a way that um, few other experiences have. It's what I want to do with my life is plant this church with you, and so thank you for being on this journey with me. Every time we meet, I'm always just blown away by your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your fervent love for God and through the uh, ministry of Joan of Arc, which as Christians, we believe that people who die don't cease to exist. We believe that people who die become part of the church in heaven, and that church in heaven prays for us just like the church on earth prays for us. And so when we consider the life of Joan, we're talking about someone who is still very much alive in the Christian tradition just as Joan believed that the saints and angels that appeared to her were very much alive, very much present with her as she moved through her life. I want to start out with some historical pegs to hang her life on, if you will, um, some historical moments that can sort of orient us to where we find her in, in, um, in human history. Joan's life takes place within the historical context in England and France, known as the Hundred Years' War. And uh, what a great name for a war. Um, it's, a, it's a series of wars, a series of battles. It really comes out of the complication uh, and complicated situation from the Norman Conquest. 1066 AD, you know, a thousand years after Jesus, uh, William the Conqueror sails to England in this massive invasion fleet and conquers England from the Anglo-Saxons. This doesn't mean the Anglo-Saxons go away. Uh, they're all there still. Uh, many of their leaders have been killed or deposed. So England becomes a place where Normans, who are really from France, they speak French, which at that point was a 
just a little different version of Latin, which, you know, it still is. Um, they're there uh, in England, occupying England. Most of them don't speak Anglo-Saxon, which is a very distinct language from, from Norman French. And so there's this cultural conflict and a military conflict. And yet over time, uh, this all merges into what we call English today. The origin of our four-letter words are often pointed to as being the result of this conflict. The Anglo-Saxon shorter words, uh, four letters, S-H-I-T-F-U-C-K, were thought of as being vulgar or common or only used by the lowest of men uh, in Anglo- the Anglo-Saxon underclass. And the Normans had much flower, more flowery words, which I can say on the air, like intercourse and excrement. And so those words are seen as more proper in polite company than the Anglo-Saxon words. So much of English is a divide between swear words and words you can use in polite company come from this conflict. But the other thing that happened when the Normans invaded England, when the Norman conquest, was that they they still held land in Normandy, which is part of France. Uh, we're here at the the seventy uh, fifth anniversary of the of the of D Day, which is an invasion from England to Norman Normandy. And there's a plaque there at the the bottom of, of one of the cliffs that uh, references that the those who have been conquered have come back to conquer, uh, put there by the British, in sort of a tongue in cheek reference to the Norman invasion. But this event that changed England and Normandy, sort of an obsession of mine, I guess, uh, as I think about the Iraq War and other wars like that, had uh, huge effects on everything, as all wars do. And one of those effects was that you have English kings who are living in mostly in England who hold a lot of land in Normandy, in France, that is also subject to the French king. And the tension between... England and France over the years, and as France becomes its own separate kingdom, this area of Normandy becomes hotly disputed uh, by the British, by the English, uh, I should say. And so uh, England is constantly in France fighting for Norman, Normandy, the Norman region of France, and fighting against other French um, armies throughout the Hundred Years' War. Meanwhile, Scotland is invading England from the north, raiding in England with very highly mobile and fierce warriors. England's keeping that uh, frontier guarded. France and Scotland have an alliance against England. So you can see the kind of tensions that normal people were caught up in at this time. It's quite confusing to follow the dynastic rivals of the House of Angevin, and the Norman uh, line of, of kings of England. But that's the situation that this young uh, girl was born into, named Joan of Arc. She's born in a small village in Domremy, France. It's a small village. It's actually smaller today than it was um, back then, um, back then in, uh, in, the, in the 1400s. And Joan's life uh, really... Uh, comes it's a very short life comes at the at the very end of this hundred years war um, she's born probably in fourteen twelve uh, We remember the world situation at this time. Columbus sails the ocean blue in fourteen ninety two 
So the world is on the, the verge of a great change, and yet the world is still very much a medieval world. It's a world dominated by chivalry, honor, castles are everywhere, uh, cities have walls and they really work. It's really when the invention of the cannon uh, comes to the fore that the walled city becomes nearly, nearly obsolete, but not completely obsolete. But she lives in the a time of the um, just the Middle Ages are still um, still going strong, if you will, and a lot of what we think of in the Middle Ages is jousting, uh, because that seems to be like a dominant motif with the knights who are still very much uh, a part of the Middle Ages, and jousting really is a late medieval invention. Before that, there were tournaments where people would hit each other with blunt swords and whatnot, but the joust comes in. Um, really, uh, not not too much earlier than Joan's life, uh, really becoming like a symbol of what medieval society was was all about, uh, putting on a big show of martial prowess. Uh, because on the battlefield, um, these kinds of techniques are are still being used by soldiers and knights. Uh, the French have always relied more on individual knights who practice the. Um, arts and requirements of chivalry. Um, the English at this time are working with knights as well, but also fighting with the English longbowmen, who are uh, commoners of the realm, who are practiced the longbow, which is a rapid-fire weapon, long-range weapon. And this gives them success in war. And so we look at um, the life of Joan being born in the small village in France. Uh, there were prophecies about her birth, uh, there were prophecies about um, a woman, a young woman, girl coming from the, the marshes of France. And so uh, the, the author that I'm reading, uh, Catherine, Joan of, uh, Joan of Arc, A Life Transfigured, uh, takes the life of Joan of Arc and compares this life to the life of Jesus. Catherine Harrison, excuse me, I forgot her last name. Uh, the life of Jesus um, as as a, um, a a way of talking about how Joan understood herself, uh, having been steeped in the the uh, catechism or the the teachings of the medieval church, Joan would have um, understood these references to the trials of Jesus, and the trials of her life really uh, are very parallel to the life of Jesus, with the with the very large exceptions and, and differences between her being involved in armed conflict and Jesus certainly not being involved in armed conflict. And before we look at the visions that she had, and I want to spend a lot of time with the visions that she had and the voices that she heard, because I think that um, her life really um, in, in this aspect is why she's a saint in our, in our church and in the Roman Catholic Church. A word on Anglican saints. Joan of Arc has been on the Episcopal Church calendar for, for many decades um, as a saint. She is, of course, a Roman Catholic saint. Uh, she became a Roman Catholic saint in the 1920s, although she had been, uh, been revered as such for many, many years before that in France and around the world, but uh, officially canonized 1920. The Episcopal Church, being an Anglican church, has... Uh, no official um, sainthood canonization process, if you will. Uh, 
but when we when we discover holy women and holy men that great cloud of witnesses we honor them by putting them on our calendar as saints and so they exist um, in a slightly different process for instance martin luther king jr is one of our saints and mother teresa and others who um, by their exemplary life have shown us what it means to live like jesus in this world and Joan is one of those people, and so she's a saint, which I know is confusing to, to some folks who have come from other church traditions and why we do that. But more on the saints as we get to Joan's life of the saints. There's an incredible um, article written about Joan's life with prone. Prone was the service that happened before the mass in the medieval church in France, um, Prone was the service that was very was in the vernacular. It would have been in French and in the language that Joan spoke as a child, and would have um, would have uh, really covered the basis basics of the catechism, which were a series of questions and answers about the Christian faith, about the Bible, about the church. And Joan would have memorized these, heard these. She would have heard uh, often exciting sermons in French about the Christian life and what kind of things that um, perhaps young people should or shouldn't be doing in the village there. Uh, We don't know a lot about her religious upbringing other than from her trial where she um, has several people testify that she knew the creed, she knew the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary, um, and the, the Our Father, and she would have memorized these just as any child would have in her village. So she in her trial, makes it very clear that she is not different from other Christian children at the time. She has learned the faith, and in her trial, she uses some of the the words from the catechism, which she would have learned at the service of prone, which a lot of times when people think of medieval Catholicism and, and ritual, they think of those big, giant churches with lots of people milling around, not really listening, and the bells are rung for the mass and people kind of look up and there's priests way in the back doing stuff. And there's that certainly is true of the Middle Ages. But there are also many little chapels that people had mass in. There are many uh, services that were rather informal out on the church porch, as it was called. Um, and one of these services is called prone. And there might have been even music and singing um, in the vernacular. And so... A lot of people see the the Reformation Church, the church that comes out of this medieval Catholic milieu, as being a, a way of carrying on the service of of uh, prone, and the um, and then the Tridentine or the sort of the backlash against the Reformation, Roman Catholicism, preserving the the service of the Mass, which is still very very much removed from the common life of the people and very focused on the priesthood. So uh, Joan would have known about, um, learned so much from, from these, uh, from these services about the Christian faith. And not only from that, but from the art that was around, there was church windows that she claims to have seen the banner that she makes when she's uh, on the battlefield, uh, depicting angels and saints. She claims, uh, she got those depictions from church windows. So she's very much, uh, in, in, uh, in concert with the religion that she had grown up in. Uh, Joan 
in her trial, remember her trial, which we sort of have to fast forward to the end of her life to talk about some of the stuff at the beginning of her life. Um, most of the source of what we know about her early life and these voices and visions comes from her trial where a group of really uh, cantankerous and odious men try to catch her in lies, try to disparage her, try to uh, discredit her credibility as a witness to the gospel. And and so the source is not that great for her just talking. If we were to interview her on a podcast um, about her visions, perhaps it would be different. There's one of the unique things about her, vi- her visions and voices is that uh, she sometimes doesn't answer questions about them. Um, when other um, mystics have have shared about their experiences, they've been more forthcoming than Joan. There are times when she would not talk about what she had seen. And this is, um, this to me really points to her credibility. Um, And as uh, Catherine Harrison points out, this makes her very comparable to the way Jesus handled his trial, where there were several times in his trial, he didn't answer questions. And Joan seems to to practice what Jesus uh, practiced um, in this way. And so uh, Joan has these very um, medieval feeling uh, visions and voices. There are several angels and saints that appear to her when she's in the woods. She is um, often associated with being a shepherd, um, but but some of that comes later. Um, But the the main uh, visions that she hears from uh, during her childhood, are the um, the Archangel Michael, Saint Margaret, and Saint Catherine of Alexandria, which may seem like an odd collection of saints and angels, but this is uh, this is who she talks to and who talks to her. These um, voices came when she was thirteen years old. Um, they were vo- a voice from God to help and guide me. So this first voice that comes to her. Uh, really uh, comes to her from God. And when we talk about how God speaks to people, we're we're often using metaphor to talk about how people understand um, God's influence in their life. And I have a lot of conversations with God in my head. I have a lot of conversations with God, sometimes out loud, but I'm always a little concerned if people hear stuff out loud, they're going to wonder if I'm sane or not. And so this this constant need to um, to appear sane around people is something that existed has existed for um, thousands of years. If you remember the story of Hannah and Samuel, Hannah is uh, praying for a child at the tabernacle, and Eli the priest comes up to her and sees her babbling or mumbling a prayer and and, and accuses her of being drunk, and um, so even back so many thousands of years ago, if a person is intensely praying and talking to God and listening to God, they're going to appear to be drunk or or maybe not even sane. And that accusation is something I think people have always been kind of concerned about, uh, which is why people have often kept their mystical experiences very secret. Uh, But there at 13 in her father's garden, Joan hears the voice of God, which... um, is there to guide her. And this, um, this kind of, um, this kind of, uh, 
voice that guides her, eventually guides her into politics, guides her into the politics of the day to involve herself with this uh, political situation that was going on not far from her home. But we can point to her visions as being primarily uh, spiritual about guiding her with her life. Um, she claims that when, when they ask, you know, how, what, what, the, what the voice said to her, um, she claims that in her trial that the voice told her to be good and to go to church often. Uh, this, is, this is where she felt a flood of light and she found herself very afraid. When the voice left, she wept and she wanted to talk to them again. Uh, she claims this voice of God was the voice also of St. Michael. And how she distinguishes those things is, is um, I'm not sure. But there was a lot of angels in this first vision. St. Gabriel was among these angels. Uh, and so right there, when we look at St. Michael, the archangel, who is the patron saint of paratroopers, is often seen destroying the devil coming out of lightning. He is spoken of in the book of Revelation as um, holding a great sword. And so this martial image of an angel is one of the, um, one of the, the visions that she sees. It's, it's easy to, um, to write her off as mentally ill, and, and many have done that over the years. But um, because of her testimony at her trial, it, it doesn't, it, it, many have uh, pointed out that, uh, that this is not, this is something she, this is not, um, this is not her breaking down and, at this point. This is her being built up and strengthened. This is a, a testimony of someone who very clearly understands what is happening to her and what, what, she is, what she is part of. So I'm going to leave the discussion of her, whether she is ill or not, to, to um, perhaps minds that are a little more skeptical than mine. But to me, it's not that strange that, that she had visions. It's not that strange that she had these mystical experiences. What is strange is that the rest of us don't have as many of these experiences and visions. I think if we were more open to the world around us, the world that God has made, perhaps we would hear more visions and more experiences. Again, like all experiences, you can't manufacture them, you can't make them, you can't wish them to happen. Um, these are experiences that come um, as God sees fit, and so we can't create them for each other or for ourselves. But this, um, but. Joan, as a, as a mystic, this is what we mean by a mystic, someone who is in touch with the realm that we can't see, someone who is on fire with a great love of God. And so even in, the, in her trial, when she sees the rack, the torture instrument, she, she strengthens her resolve to even tear her limb from limb. I'd rather have you cut my throat, she says, than tell you all that I know. Uh, when it comes to the most um, intimate details of her voices and visions, she does not disclose these. And so uh, these are the witnesses that that um, she leaves. As to the um, content of what they said to her, they did um, eventually speak a message to her for her to go and meet with the Dauphin. We'll talk about who he is a little bit um, later, but 
I want us all to think, perhaps, as we reflect on her life, that her experiences happen in a very ordinary time in her life, at the age of 13 in a garden um, where the the life of the family would have centered. Uh, these gardens were, were not just decorative. They were the way families fed themselves through the, the, the ups and downs of the communal crops that were grown. But the family garden was something that was the way that they they stayed alive. So there in that place, she has this ineffable experience where uh, the world becomes much larger than just her little village. We also know from her trial that Joan kept these visions secret, not only at her trial, but also from her companions when she was a child. For about seven years, she keeps these messages from the King of Heaven secret. Um, she hears the the the, she hears the voices, but she keeps them to herself. Um, she has these visions, but keeps them to, to herself. Um, she is convinced that she saw them with her own eyes. Uh, and so when she finally does make her move, if you will, um, where she goes out to share these visions with other people, she has had many, many years to contemplate the implications of what she's about to do. Um, she knows full well uh, what will happen to her if she is found to, or if she is thought to be a fraud or a, um, someone, an imposter of a mystic. And she knows that the stakes are really, really high. There's some really, um, what I found interesting details in how she connected with these saints and angels. In her trial, they asked her how that she could know St. Catherine of Alexandria from St. Margaret, these two uh, women saints that appear to her, and she answers, by the greeting they gave me. I also know the saints because they tell me their names. Um, so on some level, the visions she had were not um, ethereal and full of just lights and swirling colors and and voices that she had to figure out later. They seem to be very present with her. They seem to be very... Um, the voices seem to be very clear in her mind, in her ears. Um, she claims that these voices came to her daily, sometimes hourly, and became very clear and dramatic role models. Um, St. Catherine's one of the 14 holy helpers, uh, which many of many folks in France at that time would have seen chapels and churches devoted to her um, and images of her. Born, she was born in Alexandria, Egypt in 282 AD. Um, she's a beautiful daughter of a pagan king, Costas, um, and seems to have involved herself in scholarship, a world that seems that it's always that at that time and, and up until very recently was dominated by men. So like many of the women saints of old, she, uh, she moves into a realm beyond what women had, were able to move in in their lifetimes. And this may have something to do with her being a princess um, and moving in the circles. But she starts to share this message of Jesus. She converts to Christianity. She consecrates her virginity to her heavenly bridegroom. And it really becomes a proto-monastic, uh, proto-nun, who then travels around in Europe. She is involved in the evangelization and conversion of Valeria, the wife of the Roman emperor, Maxentius. And Maxentius has his wife Valeria executed for the crime of practicing Christianity. In 
in the, the late uh, 200s AD, Christianity sort of goes back and forth being a, a religion that's tolerated and a religion that's persecuted. And you're never quite sure when and where it's going to happen. Maxentius uh, then proposes that um, he and Catherine marry. This is the emperor, marries young Catherine. But she refused to accept this earthly bridegroom for Christ. So Maxentius orders that she is tortured. Um, the wheel that's supposed to break her in half splinters at her touch. And so Maxentius has her beheaded. Um, she's a witness to uh, a lot of things. The claims of Jesus on her life, the the claim that to not be subject to the whims of what she what what she saw as an evil king, an evil man, but to be subject to the kingdom of Christ. And so her life um, would have spoken to, speaks to me today as I, I read about the life of Catherine. Uh, and you can imagine how that her story would have been inspiring to young girls uh, as, as young as 13, like Joan, who would have heard her story over and over again. The other... Um, the other saint that comes to her is St. Margaret of Antioch. Um, this, there is a statue of St. Margaret in the church that Joan grew up in, in uh, Don Remy. This is um, another royal daughter. Um, her father was a pagan priest who disowned her when she converted to Christianity, and then she vowed to remain a virgin. She escaped his house disguised as a man. Um, that detail should resonate with us as we think about the life of Joan and her clothing choices later. Um, another Roman governor tries to make her his wife, but she renounces him. She's tortured. Um, she escapes from inside a dragon that swallows her by using a cross to rake the inside of the beast's stomach until it vomits her back up. Um, what a story. Eventually, Margaret's petition go unanswered, and she saw more clearly what lay on the other side of this mortal life, and she gives it up. Um, she's, she dies. I'm not sure how she dies, but um, she is declared apocryphal, and that means doubtful. The apocrypha are the doubtful books. She's declared apocryphal by the church in 494. Uh, you would think maybe the story about the dragon tip somebody off that it might have been apocryphal. But who knows? There's many of these stories um, have, a, have a mythological origin or, or a historical origin that the story has uh, sort of run away from. But you can see how these two, um, these two virginal uh, saints who resist the, the, uh, the, resist the, resist the biological imperatives of their age resist the um, categorizations and uh, roles that they must play as as good daughters and good wives to these powerful um, men, but in fact chart their own course with God that defies all the strictures of their society. And so you can see how Joan's relationship with these saints would have been very meaningful and given her a lot of courage and St. Michael sort of coming in as this, this angel, she says she knows it's an angel because they speak with an angel 
tongue or an angel language, um, which I can only imagine how that sounds. We wonder um, how that was experienced by her. But angels um, appear male, and Michael certainly does, in all depictions in art and all depictions. But the experience of angels, um, when you read the stories about them in the Bible and elsewhere, they, they don't seem to be uh, male in the same way we, we think of um, identifying people as male today by perhaps their hair or the, a deeper voice or something. Um, angels sort of uh, work in a, in a non-binary world, if you will. They, they, um, they're, all, they're, they're exclusively in the Bible described as being uh, male or appearing as men. But in fact, they seem to also not really fit into that stricture of, of, of a male and female in the way that, that um, humans tend to be categorized that way, often unhelpfully categorized that way, I'm reminded. And so, uh, when her, the, so these three um, influences, and then there's Gabriel in there somewhere and some other angels, but, but uh, Catherine and Margaret really form Joan's uh, identity as a young woman that carries her all the way to the trial and to her own execution. Um, she, she, um, she, well, we'll get into some of the um, unique things about her relationship with her own um, body and with her own virginity uh, that she describes in her trial and other witnesses describe in her um, in in the trial of her life in future episodes, but I want to end with um, with this um, this this major um, victory that she won in her early life, a victory that I think all of us have to face, or a battle all of us have to face as young people, and especially young women. I'm, I was a young man um, once many years ago, and remember this coming of age as being a very difficult time of trying to find my own identity, who I was. I looked to older men primarily to figure out what my identity would be. Eric Erickson, the great sociologist um, who really pioneered the work, was himself an orphan who sought an identity. He chose his own last name of Erickson, um, his own first name, if you will, and talked about the identity crisis that an adolescent goes through where an adolescent uh, puts himself in front of mirrors, and he's describing mostly male adolescents, I believe, in his studies. But I think um, I think a lot of his work um, certainly refers to all adolescents who stand in front of mirrors that they and then try different outfits on, and they're always sort of searching for an identity, um, having identity crises. Who am I? What am I here for? And Joan uh, goes through this formation of identity with these saints in a really powerful way. And uh, it's not, I, I think of um, the young people I know that are going through this right now, um, as I have teenage children and I see other teenagers going, navigating this identity. It's, I feel helpless to help them in this. I feel often um, unable to really give them much and yet I'm, I'm reminded that one of the things that we all can give the teenagers around us is is a example of what a um, mature identity looks like for us. 
um, our own authentic selves, living our life with joy and peace, making peace in the world, is, some, is a gift that we can give them without telling them uh, what to do, what to think, what to say, who to be when they grow up. Um, because for the most part, they already are. So thanks for joining me on the Dear Padre podcast. Um, We'll look forward to seeing more episodes about Joan and uh, encourage you to to keep following her story and following the story of this church plant and following following the the voices of God that you hear in your life. Uh, We're going to look at, um, oh, in the church plant news, we had our first service in our new location, the Three-Legged Goat in Pflugerville. It's a beautiful wine bar there that um, has, is hosting us, and we're, we're kind of outgrowing it on our first service. We, um, we, we were quite crowded there, but I think we'll, we'll be able to rearrange the chairs a little better next time. We also do a, a warrior church, which is like a, a workout and prayer group in the park at 730 on Sundays, which is really fun and has really uh, changed my vision of spirituality from a, from a very sedentary one to a very active one. So if you'd like more information on that, uh, shoot me an email, or if you want to talk about a specific area of Joan's life, let me know. Thanks.